but I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we make our way through this letter, uh, we come to chapter 3, and I'd like to read the first uh, nine verses of the chapter, so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, being raised in a church that was different than this, I was led to believe that there were two different types of Christians in this life. The first type of Christian was known as a spirit-filled Christian a Christian who was filled with the Holy Spirit and kept in step with the Holy Spirit, bringing forth fruits of repentance and righteousness in this life. The other type of Christian, however, was one who embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior, but not as his Lord. And so that Christian, rather than keeping in step with the Holy Spirit and bringing forth fruits of repentance and righteousness in this life, he rather lived according to the flesh. And so that other type of Christian was called a carnal Christian. That word carnal related to the word for flesh. And of course, all of these carnal, these so-called carnal Christians were encouraged not to remain complacent, not to be content with flying in coach, but to move on up to first class by yielding to the Holy Spirit And only when they yield to the Holy Spirit would these carnal Christians be able to live the victorious Christian life. That was how I was taught, being raised. But only when I came to understand the Reformed faith did I realize what the Apostle Paul has already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That Christ is not divided. And when you embrace Christ, you embrace the whole Christ. He is both your Savior as well as your Lord. And you get all of his benefits, not just the benefit of justification, having your sins forgiven, but also the benefit of sanctification, 
where Christ your Savior renews you by the power of his Holy Spirit and conforms you into his image, and therefore necessarily you bring forth fruits of repentance. And so there are not two types of Christians in this life, spiritual Christians and carnal Christians, but there is one type of Christian, a sinner who is saved by grace, who nevertheless is being renewed in the image of his creator. But if that's the case, then where on earth would people ever get the idea that there are two types of Christians in this life, or that somehow there could be what is known as a carnal Christian? Well, I would submit to you today that people would get that idea from our passage that I just read for you, where the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthians for living according to the flesh. He says, you were not spiritual, or I could not address you as spiritual people, but people of the flesh. If you have a King King James, it says, are you not acting in a carnal manner? And so what does the Apostle Paul mean? And what can we learn from this passage as he rebukes the Corinthians for living according to the flesh? Well, for those of you who have been with us through our study for Corinthians, you'll be reminded of the fact that the Apostle Paul has just told his listeners, reminded his listeners that they had received the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit has given them what he calls the mind of Christ, the fullness of God's revelation, the revealing of his power and strength through the message of the cross. And although that message of the cross was perceived as weakness and folly to this lost and dying world, it is in fact the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And these Corinthians, Paul says, and including all of us, have been enabled to embrace this message only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only when the Holy Spirit turns us from being a natural man into a spiritual man are we enabled to understand and embrace this, the message of the gospel. And we concluded last week by seeing how the Apostle Paul says that this spiritual man, this person who has been renewed and filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to judge all things through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, being able to discern between the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the age which is to come. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in his light, we are able to see light, and we are able to rightly discern the lies and deceptions of the world, the wisdom of this, the demonic so-called wisdom of this age and the wisdom which comes from God. But of course, we are not able to do this perfectly. And that is exactly what is happening in Corinth. You see, Paul tells them they have the Holy Spirit, but they're not using him. They're not using that discernment that the Spirit has given them because he goes on to say, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people because you are people of the flesh. Now, surprisingly, Paul now tells his readers that although they are truly spiritual people, Paul cannot speak to them that way. Why? Because they're living according to the flesh. Now, it's important for us to understand that when Paul uses the term flesh, he's not referring just to our physical bodies. When he contrasts flesh and spirit, he's not talking about that the material part of us and the immaterial part of us, but rather when he's speaking about the flesh, he's not referring to just our physical nature, but our fallen nature, our sin nature, which is characterized by sin 
and hostility to God. Paul describes that in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so when he refers to the flesh, he's referring to our sin nature, which includes things like our minds, our thoughts. But then when he talks about the spirit, he's, again, he's not referring to just that immaterial aspect of us, but rather the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so Paul is not denying what he has already said about his readers. Remember how he first addressed them at the very beginning? Chapter 1, verse 2, to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. He's not denying what he just told them when he says the Spirit has given this stuff to us, that the Spirit has given us the mind of Christ. He still views his audience as fellow believers who thus necessarily have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not his. Paul clearly states that in Romans chapter 8 when he says, you there, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so there's no sort of third category where you have somebody who is saved but doesn't have the spirit. You either have the spirit and you are in Christ Jesus or you don't have the Spirit, and you do not belong to Him. And so Paul's speaking to his audience as those who are in Christ who have the Spirit. And so there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. But what's important to note here is that just because we have the Spirit does not mean that we always act according to the Spirit. That's why we read Galatians chapter 5 today, where the Apostle Paul needs to remind us of the fact that we have crucified our flesh, that we have been set free, but we shouldn't use that freedom as a license to sin, that we shouldn't yield our bodies over to our flesh because it's been put to death, but rather we should keep in step with the Holy Spirit. But this is a daily battle. As Paul says, uh, as he says, I'll read it again, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Does that sound familiar? I think that's part of our Christian life. As long as we are in uh, this fallen state, this is going to be our Christian life. The desires of the flesh and the Spirit warring against each other but we are constantly uh, encouraged to put to death the old man and make alive the new. But you see, the fact that the, the Corinthians were allowing the ways and the standards of the world to divide the church showed that they were not mature as they thought, but rather they were acting like babies. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I had to speak to you like you were infants, like you were infants in Christ. And therefore, Paul treated them accordingly. He said, I had to feed you milk and not solid food. And he says, even reminding them, not only how he spoke to them originally when he first came to Corinth, as he spent 18 months there planting and nurturing that church, but even now, years later, 
the Apostle Paul still has to give them milk. They haven't graduated to eating solid food. That same type of rebuke is, uh, is uh, mentioned in Hebrews chapter 5, as the author says, uh, speaking about Melchizedek and the high priesthood of Christ, he says about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Does that sound familiar? The Apostle Paul says the Spirit has given us the mind of Christ so that we can judge all things, so that we can discern between the false wisdom of this age and the true wisdom which comes from the age comes from above. You see, the very fact that the Corinthians were unable or perhaps better unwilling to distinguish between the wisdom, the false wisdom of this age, and that of God showed that they were utterly immature. They were acting like infants. And so the Apostle Paul has to give them the basic elementals. He has to remind them of the fact that they have the spirit, they have the mind of Christ. They're forgetting these things. And the fact, and, and, and it is evident that they were not living according to the mind of Christ because they had jealousy and strife. In verse 3, whenever you see this, these things, jealousy and strife, these are the works of the flesh. They were not living according to the mind of Christ, which is characterized by sacrificial love and service. But rather, they were living according to the flesh, which, as we saw in Galatians 5, is characterized by enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. That's what was plaguing this church in Corinth. Paul says, you guys are living according to the flesh. And so here's your bottle. Here's a reminder of who you are in Christ Jesus And Paul goes to quote them directly, getting all the way back to when he first mentioned this idea of division. Now he's addressing this issue head on when he says in verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are you not acting like men, like the world? You see, Paul quoting their, their slogans as, as, as the church was divided amongst party groups, each giving their exclusive loyalty to particular leaders within the church. Paul was saying that they were living according to the world. They were acting like others in Corinth were when they would follow the so-called sophists, those uh, professional speakers who sought to uh, uh, please their audiences with their eloquence and demanded a loyal following from from their disciples, Paul says, you're doing what the world does. You're living according to the flesh. And so having rebuked his audience for living according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit, having rebuked them for their immature and sinful acts, Paul then in verse 5 goes on to discuss the proper role of officers within the church. And, And really... What he starts here, he'll continue for the rest of this chapter and all through chapter 4, where he gives us a a clear and accurate picture of what the Christian ministry should look like. 
See, people in Corinth were taking Christian ministers like Apollos and Paul and Cephas, and they were turning them into celebrities. And they were, they were uh, dividing the church as they were giving loyalty to each. And Paul says, no, you guys got it all wrong. This is what Christian ministry should look like. And so he asks the question, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Notice he doesn't say who is Apollos or who is Paul. I think the King James uh, is following a, 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 another textual uh, Uh, other textual manuscripts, but I think the better manuscripts is, what is Apollos? What is Paul? That is, it's not, he's not concerned about their personal identity. I'm sure that the Paul group in Corinth could tell Paul exactly who he was, and the Apollos group likewise. Rather, he doesn't say who is Apollos, but what. He's concerned about their roles as, um, as ministers. You see, the Corinthians had created little personality cults. And Paul needs to remind his audience that it's not about him. It's not about Apollos. It's not about any other person except for Christ Jesus alone. He alone is the sole foundation upon which the church is built. And so there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? How many churches today are built around the personality of the lead pastor? I mean, you see this so prevalent. You see it throughout church history, but even in more recent history, you see uh, not just churches, but entire denominations centered around a particular man or woman. Somehow, Instagram has figured out that I'm a Christian. And so <laughs> they give me ads that they think would be appealing to me. And today, this very morning, as I was scrolling through, I got an ad for an upcoming conference And you wouldn't have any idea what the content of this conference is about, but you knew who was speaking there. And of course, they wanted you to register and pay money so you could see these well-known Christian speakers. It's all about personality. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what human nature is drawn to. And so the Apostle Paul says, no, it's not about the personality of the minister. Who cares who, who they are? It's what? What is Apollos? What is Paul? The answer he gives? Servants. We are servants. This is the same word that is uh, translated uh, that we use for deacon. They're diakonos. They are servants or ministers. Paul uses this lowly term to describe he and Apollos' roles. It's interesting, I, you know, oftentimes I'm asked uh, when I fill out forms to put my profession, and more often than not, I put minister, and that sounds like a nice title. Oh, a minister. Oh, how impressive. Until you forget the fact that minister literally means servant. I mean, I guess I could just put servant there, and that would probably be more accurate, right? That's what the Apostle Paul says. Look, I am a servant. Elsewhere, he'll call himself a slave a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is completely antithetical to the ways of the world. Those sophists uh, who, who gained disciples and, and, and demanded exclusive loyalty paid to them, they would never consider themselves as servants. They had servants. The Apostle Paul says, no, we're servants. We're slaves. We're all serving one master. And of course, this is what 
our Lord has taught us, even when he was here on earth. This is what he had to drive home to his disciples who were bickering and fighting about who would be greatest in the kingdom, who would get to sit at the right hand of the Lord when he ushered in his kingdom. And Jesus called them all over and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. You can picture at this time that, you know, John and James and Peter would say, yeah, yeah, we like that. When are we going to get to do that? When are we going to get to lord it over others and sit at your right hand? And he says, the great ones exercise authority over them. Yeah, we want that authority. But Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, a servant is not greater than his master. And if our Lord and Master did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself in sacrificial love, that's exactly what he requires of his servants, of his under-shepherds, as they minister to the church, that we are mere servants serving at the Lord's pleasure. And yet they're not just lowly servants who just can be cast aside and completely disregarded. Because what does Paul go on to say? He says there in verse 5 that we are servants through whom you believed. Do you see that? Servants through whom you believed. You see, here Paul now is emphasizing the fact that they they are servants of the Lord, but they are also instruments of the Lord in his hands. You see, the Lord is pleased in his infinite wisdom to use fallible, sinful human ministers to create and sustain faith in the hearts of the people. I mean, God could send his angels to proclaim the gospel. God could just zap us with lightning and we'll immediately believe. And yet he, was, he is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching. He's pleased to use Paul, who comes in fear, trembling, to proclaim the simple message of Christ crucified. And, and it is through that that he creates faith in the hearts of the listeners. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, for Paul, The idea that somebody can believe in the gospel apart from the preaching of the gospel is completely absurd. You see, the Lord is pleased to use his servants as instruments through which his Holy Spirit will work and create faith in the listeners and give them the mind of Christ. And so Paul, in verse 6, goes on expanding upon this metaphor of he and Apollos being servants of the Lord and applying it to the agricultural setting. This is very common in the ancient world. He's building off of a very rich tradition that we see in the Old Testament where Israel is likened to the vineyard of God. where The Lord plants his vine in the, in the Holy Land and, and nourishes that vine as it grows and bears forth fruit. The Lord is continuing to do that, and he's sending workers into his field. And so Paul says, according to the Lord's sovereign direction, by the way, remember, they're they're servants of the Lord, according to his sovereign direction. Paul reminds the audience that he planted the church. He was the first to go there and proclaim the gospel and stayed there 18 months ministering and proclaiming the gospel to the people in Corinth 
followed by Apollos. And keep in mind, it was, it was Paul who encouraged Apollos to go to Corinth. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. So they were not competitors, but fellow workers. Not competing, but complementing each other's labors. As Paul, as Paul planted, Apollos watered, but most importantly, God gave the growth. Probably a better way to translate that would be what we read in the NIV. God has been making it grow. It's not just a one-time deal. It's God's continuing to cause the church to grow and flourish. So in conclusion, Paul says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. See, although both Paul and Apollos were extremely gifted men, Luke tells us in Acts 18 that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And we know how, how gifted the apostle Paul was. At the end of the day, only the Lord can create and sustain faith in his people. Only the Lord is the one. Only God can give the actual increase in growth within the church. And then Paul tells his, his, uh, his audience, reminding them that he who plants and he who waters are one. Here again, I think he's building off of what he said at the very beginning as he began to address the division within his church, within the church. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? No, he's not divided. So neither are his servants. He'll go on to apply this not just to ministers, but to the entire body in chapter 12. As he says, because there's one Lord and one spirit, his body is one. And so we all ought to be united, but here he's focusing on the roles of the ministers. They're not competitors. They are one. They are equals, working together towards the same goal. They have the same status and the same purpose. It's amazing that the Apostle Paul would do this with Apollos. I mean, after all, he's an apostle. Apollos is just a preacher. And yet the Apostle Paul says, no, we're one. We're equals. We're working towards the same goal. We are both fellow laborers serving our Lord. And he says that each one, and I think he can apply, we can apply this to all Christian ministers, not just Paul and Apollos, but anyone who is called to proclaim the gospel, he says each, at the end of verse 8, will receive his wages according to his labor. Now at this point we might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Apostle Paul just say that he who plants and he who, he who waters aren't, are not anything? And that God alone gives the increase? How can the Apostle Paul speak of wages? Or another way to translate this is reward. How can the Apostle Paul talk about a minister receiving a reward when it, only God gives the increase, when they're just mere servants, mere instruments in the hands of the Lord? Doesn't the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 say, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due? So what do we make of this whole language about the minister receiving wages or receiving a reward? And by the way, it's not just for ministers. Later on, the Apostle Paul will apply it to the whole church, uh, talking about how we run the race to receive a prize at the end. It's important to keep in mind that when the Apostle Paul is talking about wages or reward, he is not talking about earning one's salvation. 
This is not a, uh, he's not discussing the narrow topic of justification by faith alone. He's not espousing some alternate type of justification by justification through having a successful ministry. Next week, when we get into the rest of chapter 3, we'll see that even the minister who at the end of the day, at the last day, has nothing to show for his labors. The minister who, who labored and yet did it for himself, for his own glory and not for the Lord. And so at the end of the day, all that he has done has been burned up. The Apostle Paul says in verse 15 that he will be saved. He will be saved. Why? Because a minister is not saved through his labors, but through grace alone. Praise God of that. And so if Paul's talking about, if Paul is, is not denying the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, then what does he mean when he talks about wages or a reward? You see, when we hear that language of, of wages or reward, we automatically think of works. That's just how we're hardwired. We automatically think that we somehow must have earned those wages and rewards. But you see, when we hear of wages and rewards for the believer, as those who are united to Jesus Christ, as those who have faith in him, when we hear about uh, uh, Jesus Christ saying, well done, good and faithful servant, and great is your reward in heaven, when we hear that type of language in Scripture, we shouldn't think of works, but rather we should think of grace. Why? Because God has seen fit in his infinite grace to reward his grace with more grace. And so those rewards that we will receive through spirit-wrought works, for spirit-wrought works in this life, are God richly showering grace upon grace upon grace. And so no one will stand before the throne, the judgment seat of Christ, and pat himself on the back. He will be taking his crown and casting it before the throne, knowing that the, the crown that we receive, the, way, the reward and wages we receive, is just more grace on top of grace. I think our Lord teaches this idea or concept very well in Matthew chapter 20 when he tells the parable about the day laborers, where he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Similar metaphor going on here. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's a certain amount of money, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with last to the first. So the people who came at the eleventh hour, who only worked for one hour, are going to get paid first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. They get paid for the entire day. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more because each of them also received a denarius. So they're thinking, well, I've earned it. 
if the guy who only worked for one hour gets paid for the whole day, how much more do I deserve? And yet, on receiving only a denarius, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have, been, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is how the kingdom of God works. We don't earn our reward. It is freely given out of God's good pleasure and grace. And I think we see that grace in conclusion as the Apostle Paul summarizes by saying, we, speaking of he and Apollos, but I think including all Christian ministers, he says, we are God's fellow workers. Now, this could be understood in one of two ways. Either, either Paul is saying, we, uh, Paul, Apollos and I are fellow laborers who belong to God, or I think more accurately, that Apollos and Paul are fellow laborers together with God. And the very fact that Paul is able to work together with God in his vineyard is a sign of God's grace. As we'll go on to say in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, I worked. The very fact that he received this call to be an apostle, to proclaim the gospel, to work together with his Lord, to plant water and harvest a people for God's glory is an act of God's free grace let alone the fact that he'll reward him at the last day. So Paul goes on to remind his audience that they are God's field and that he sends his laborers to plant water and harvest to people for himself so that we as God's people might bear forth the fruits of the Holy Spirit. May God, as, as we are reminded of the fact that we have been given the mind of Christ, that we are spiritual creatures, May we put to death the deeds of the flesh. May we bear forth the fruits of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word and the sacraments that God has given to us. Amen.